Hey everyone, a couple of things before we get started on the episode today. If you've enjoyed the Thanks for Sharing podcast, and if you've found episodes to be helpful, please go to whatever platform that you listen to your podcasts on and rate and review the Thanks for Sharing podcast. Second, I wanted to update you about some things that are going on at One Layer Deeper. I've talked about One Layer Deeper before, and We've got some exciting things, myself and Amy from Worth Recovery, going on over at One Layer Deeper. So consider this maybe like a pre-preview of what's coming up. We are going to be offering a subscription box. You've heard about subscription boxes out there. Maybe you subscribe to one or several. There's a lot of different subscription boxes for various things. However, what we found is there's not one for what we want to do, which is pushing recovery one layer deeper. So we've decided this first go around on the subscription box, the topic is going to be all focused around boundaries. And you can sign up to subscribe for a year's worth of boxes all about boundaries. Some things that Amy and I will share with you, some downloaded exercises that you'll have, a novelty item that you'll get every month. We're having a lot of fun putting together and coming up with the novelty items that go around boundaries that the subscriber can have some fun with. So stay tuned for that. I'll keep giving information and update you when those subscriptions can start. Now onto the episode. This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. And today on our show, we have a guest with us. Her name is M. Capito. And let me just tell you a little bit about M. She is a licensed clinical social worker with 12 years of experience. Within her private practice, she has specialized over the past few years in working with women experiencing difficult life transitions, in particular navigating high-conflict separations and custody situations, which often involves narcissistic or antisocial features in one or both parties, and maybe even the attorneys. Um, She additionally works heavily in the addiction field where personality disorders can complicate recovery in many ways. As a therapist, she focuses on holistic mind-body resilience, blending in mindfulness, experiential work, and yoga therapy. She is a life power yoga teacher and a Dharana method meditation teacher. So I'm excited to have her. Welcome, Em. Thanks so much, Jackie. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so I'm excited to have this discussion um, where do you want to start? Oh, good question. Uh, I think giving a little context to where my perspective comes from, because we all have our different goggles. Um, in working with women in particular in that transition period, and they are seeking therapy, I feel like I see things from the perspective of the other partner more often than I do from the individual that has NPD or or I should say narcissistic personality disorder um, or antisocial features, primarily because I work solely with women in that focus and primarily with those who have initiated the separation or divorce, which is often not the person who has the narcissistic or antisocial features. And I work with people who uh, self-describe their conflict with our situation 
often as high drama or high conflict, uh, whereas research and clinical observations suggest that the incidence of um, narcissistic and antisocial features is greater among men than women. So I tend to see that discrepancy um, and individuals with those features tend to be less likely to self-seek therapy. Mm -hmm. um, they often seek legal remedies instead, so they just don't show up in practice in the way that I market. And um, they tend to underestimate, in my experience, the level of conflict. Um, they kind of see it more as a more normal feature that could be solved. And so they're just less likely to self-identify in the way that I offer services. So I feel like my perspective is from like, ferreting out the signs and symptoms of these features playing out in relationships from the person that's trying to figure out what the heck is going on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because I think oftentimes, I think often for partners, they're doing what I call like pro relational things. Yeah. And so it can take a while for them to figure out that that's not going to work. Right. And these skills, which are pro relational and often very healthy in a situation where they're in a relationship with someone with narcissistic personality disorder, those traits are not useful. Right. Yeah. It kind of sucks you in. Um, and I think this, it's really sad in a way because a lot of clients who go through that relationship experience from start to end pull back their empathy because it was used against them, right? Because they right. tend to be more open hearted and trusting and want to forgive and move on. And it feeds right into that uh, toxic uh, cycle and gets you stuck longer. Um, so it actually becomes a wep like weaponized. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what's your experience in terms of like how maybe how long this process takes for the women that you work with? Yeah, it's really interesting to see just how universal and cookie cutter it can be a lot of the time. That's not just, it's always case by case, but one of the most fascinating things to me and what got me so interested in this is that these women will show up with the exact same story almost, right? Mm -hmm. The same timeline, the same events, the same tactics, the same words that came out of their partner's mouth. And it's amazing. And I think that that's also where there's a lot of fulfillment in this work is there's so much relief when you realize that you're not alone and that you're not crazy and that this has been happening to other people and they can understand you. Uh, whereas if someone has never really been in an intimate relationship with someone with those features, they really can't understand you. They, you know, you share your experience and they give you, you know, typical pro relational advice, right? Like, well, maybe you guys should try this or try this. And you're like, I've tried all of that. <laughs> yeah. So as far as timeline, I feel like there's some distinct stages that people move through when you're not the one where you're a partner that does not have these features, but you are with someone who does. And it varies a little bit between narcissism and antisocial features, but um, I think this particular timeline fits more towards narcissism, but it's really hard to d distinguish between the two. Honestly, there's so much overlap, but typically the first stage is like knight in shining armor. There's mm -hmm. just, they're my soulmate. They fit me perfectly. They do really sweet and generous, uh, seemingly empathic things. And I feel like 
from, you know, years of doing this now, looking at all those stories, there's this tendency to mirror the partner that you want to be with when you have that deep insecurity and lack of self-worth. And so those, that early honeymoon stage can be really uh, exciting and feel really, really good, especially for women who are open-hearted and empathic mm -hmm. and passionate, um, because suddenly they've met someone who just is so excited and um, reinforces them and supports them and isn't uh, you know, they appreciate having this partner that shines, right, especially with the narcissistic features, because they want somebody that makes them look good. And so they really reinforce all of these pieces and mirror back to you that they like all the same things. Mm -hmm. and there can be this interesting whiplash after they finally separate and the um, narcissistic partner moves on and becomes a totally different person with their next partner, because then they need to mirror somebody else. Right. But that first stage is like, oh, it's wonderful and yummy and it often moves very quickly. Um, it seems like there's this very fast, we met and now we're together and now we're going to make this ultimate commitment of marriage and have children. And that phase moves faster, it feels like, um, okay. when you're with someone with those features. And then stage so two, was, yeah. Good question. So if you, were, if you as a person, right, like maybe you've had a narcissistic parent or you're prone to getting into narcissistic relationships, right? That's been your history. In that first stage, you've talked about how, you know, it's very honeymoon phase, which in a lot of relationships, right? They have that honeymoon phase. Mm -hmm. How would you maybe test the waters, right? To see if this is just your typical honeymoon stage where everything feels good versus this is more of a red flag with a narcissistic partner. Great question. And I think one of the common features among all my clients is that looking back, there were so many red flags, even during the honeymoon stage. Mm -hmm. And I think that testing of the waters is when conflict arises in the relationship, what happens. And in a lot of cases, the gaslighting starts to present early on in conflict, where um, you have this really crazy making experience of someone uh, projecting onto you exactly what they did. And they're a lot of times very calm and well-spoken and curated. They're not messy in the conflict, especially on the narcissistic side. And so, and they push buttons like a master, mm -hmm. right? They really see through because they're protecting their very fragile inner states, their uh, lack of self-worth rate, but they're protecting all of that on such high alert, I think they learn over the course of a lifetime in order to survive, they need to know people's weaknesses, their buttons and how to manipulate people. Yeah. And so that becomes very easy once you're in an intimate relationship to know what would hurt someone the most, mm -hmm. especially picking at someone's sense of identity and self-worth. And so they'll push all the right buttons, but with a calm demeanor and uh, until you explode or react poorly, and then your natural inclination, if you're an empathic, like responsible individual is, oh, like I reacted way worse than he did or she did. And so I'm more of the problem than they are. And so you, it removes all of the attention off of the initial conflict or the picking at the buttons and shifts the attention to your own poor reaction. And so all is forgiven and you move forward. Okay, perfect. Thanks. And then you were talking about going into phase two. Yeah. I feel like phase two, so many people describe in the literature and within my own clinical experience, this whiplash of the light switch being flipped all of a sudden, mm -hmm. typically right after the wedding or right after you have your first child together. Like there's this point where uh, it goes from just, just during conflict, things go poorly to like 
out, outright just shocking behavior that you would have never expected from this person you thought you knew. And like I said, everyone looking back, hindsight is 2020. The, the warning signs do kind of give way to it. But if you're looking at the world from a point of view, a set of goggles where you've never dealt with this before, you assume people are all trying to do their best, that they're working to get better, and that you can always work on things. And so those initial warning signs seem pretty minor, like we'll just get through this, everybody fights, it will get better with time. And so then when that light switch flips and it's really extreme, uh, it can be very shocking, but most uh, women in, in this situation are so far in at that point, they're married or, or pregnant or have had the baby and they feel like we have to work on this. This is something we have, I'm committed. I'm still going to see this through. And it's not that that's not ever successful, but often it's a naive approach that relies on the other person having empathy and having a sense of personal responsibility and some skin in the game of, of improving themselves, their ability to see that they are part of the problem. And those pieces tend to be missing with somebody who has a narcissistic personality disorder. Okay. So is there kind of this in phase two where there's that whiplash, is there maybe a belief like we can get back to what we had? Uh, yeah, we can get back to phase one because we had it, obviously, right? And like you said, if you're if you're wearing goggles and seeing things that are completely foreign to you, you're going to be bringing your skills, which are kind of that. I'll take responsibility for my part. I'll improve myself. I'll do what I can, and then we'll get back to that really connected stage that we had, maybe an illusion of in phase one, but it felt real. Absolutely, and these. <clears throat> partners tend to be really good at reinforcing that, right? So as soon as you take responsibility for the conflict, they switch and they reinforce you for being just the best person in the world. They're their soulmate. Um, they're so glad that you're with them. They reinforce uh, a lot of different pieces about you. They can be the best partner 80, 90% of the time, like just a dream spouse or significant other sometimes where, you know, they make dinner, they clean up, they're helping you with your work, they're helping with the kids. Like they're doing a lot of these actions that are very confusing as far as like, well, we ha it's so good. Like how could I complain about these few pieces that seem mm -hmm. so insane? Yeah, that would seem confusing then. Mm -hmm. If 80, 90% is a good partner, and then there's just these ones that you can't quite make sense of or wrap your head around that would feel confusing to the partner maybe. Absolutely, which is where gaslighting takes us, right? It's just knocking you off your base until you're so confused that you're really, and the tendency of a rational person coming into this relationship is to look at themselves, like you pointed out, of like, what can I do differently? I, I know like I've worked with quite a few social workers because I also specialize in working with helping professionals as a therapist. And the crossover has been interesting because people who go into the helping professions tend to have that desirable trait set that uh, attracts narcissistic individuals mm. because we look within, we say, oh, I know I can change the whole system if I change myself, right? Like yeah. I can, you know, do the work and kind of bleeding heart type of, it's, it's okay. I'm not going to take it personally. I'm just going to do what I need to do to change the dynamics. Okay, so then after that, like, does phase two just last 
forever or is there a phase three? <laughs> yeah. So I would say like, I see kind of six phases um, okay. to give us a broader perspective. So I think after that whiplash, it, go, it keeps repeating itself to the point where stage three, I kind of call playing detective where you are, you're in these arguments and you literally wish you had a video camera, right? Because it's uh, the gaslighting piece of projecting onto the other person exactly what you just said or you just did and saying that they did it is so crazy making to have a conversation with somebody will just blatantly lie to your face knowing that you were there to witness the entire mm -hmm. experience. Um, but then we'll say the opposite with such conviction and with absolute calmness that you start to like pull together like evidence, right? Because you're still like hoping to like help them see or help you see what's going on. Right. And so there's this process that a lot of partners will go through of like actually taking audio recordings of um, fights and trying to like prove like, no, see, I have the recording. You said this and I, you know, I, or I haven't seen any client do a video recording yet, but everyone wishes they could, yeah. right? Like I wish I could install videos everywhere in our house because it's just so maddening when reality is distorted in the fight that ensues after something happens and it's distorted forever. So every fight thereafter, um, like a, a great uh, example would be you had this fight early in the relationship, maybe a year or two in, and it got twisted to where you slammed the door instead of the partner who actually mm -hmm. slammed the door. And this is crazy making enough in that moment, but then you decide to move on, let it go, but then every future fight, it's brought up about how you slammed and broke the door. <laughs> and again, you get thrown into this defensive, like detective stage of like, no, like, <laughs> and they'll even at times finally admit that they slammed the door if you catch them enough with enough evidence. And then you think, oh, thank God, they finally admitted it. Mm -hmm. But then the next fight, they will go right back to the prior narrative, which was that you slammed the door. And it's just the most crazy making experience. Yeah. So I feel like there's, and it sounds like it's a, it's a way to distract. Like now we're fighting about this instead of actually what we were fighting about. Right. Absolutely. It just shifts all of the attention into this other button that they get to push whenever they want to bring us back to this argument from years ago. And mm -hmm. over time you accumulate a lot of those buttons of these arguments that were absolutely insane and they'll always revert right back to their initial stance that drives you absolutely nuts. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that's kind of phase three. Yeah. Uh, and then I think we pretty quickly after that move into stage four of I'm the crazy one. Mm -hmm. And it's, this is the saddest part uh, because it's just, and, and a lot of people who haven't experienced this, it's mind boggling that you could be brainwashed in this way. Right. But the, the point with gaslighting is it's slow. It's this slow manipulation, the frog in the frying pan mm -hmm. that just, it's the water slowly heats up until it's suddenly boiling. And between projecting onto you everything that they do, the blatant lies right to your face to throw you off base and, and keep you in a questioning defensive position. And then you go through this like detective phase and you start to feel crazy because you're going out of your way to you start to feel paranoid. Yeah. Um, and they, they start to, reflect that to you like oh we love each other why are you doing this like what's mm -hmm. wrong with you and in the process of that they isolate their partners oftentimes they will slowly encourage you to cut off relationships uh, to distance yourself from people who are good outside sources of reality checking um, people who reinforce self-esteem because they want to um, 
break you down to the point where you are pliable and, um, and ma- manipulatable <laughs> to yeah. make up a word there and everything's incongruent, right? They'll say one thing, do another. And after pushing all your buttons so many times to the point where you are, you know, it's crazy making, you will react poorly in those situations. You will slam doors, you will Mm -hmm. scream or cuss or even become violent when somebody is being insidious about pushing buttons this way. And so you eventually uh, adopt this, oh, I am the crazy one. And most commonly, especially among female clients, which is who I see, is this identification as having borderline personality disorder. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah, a little bit more about that. Yeah. When we go through the features of borderline personality disorder, it looks just like somebody who is in relationship with a narcissist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you, if you start to question yourself enough and then you look at the criteria, you Google it, right? You're like, this is what's going on. You'll find this diagnosis pop up and it sounds like you, these extreme mood disorders, kind of black and white survival from one moment to the next, the reactivity, just feeling, you know, loved, unloved, loved, unloved, but that's what you're actually experiencing. Right. So it's this real life uh, presentation that looks a lot like borderline personality disorder. Yeah. And, and, and at that point, they're often willing to pick up, right? Because they've been picking up responsibility for this for so long that they are looking at some of these, I mean, borderline personality disorder is a pretty heavy diagnosis and they're totally willing to pick that up and apply that to themselves. Yeah. It feels like hope, you know, even if it's you, because if you have enough ego strength to look at yourself for your own flaws or needs for improvement, then finding an answer that it seems like an answer anyway, that you're like, Oh, this is me and, and all of the evidence points to me. My partner is just calm and cool and collected all the time. And I'm the one that's just all over the roadmap. I can get therapy. I can get help. I can do the workbooks. I can read all, all of the books I can buy off of Amazon on this topic. And I can change myself so that I can have happiness and peace. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think we pick it up quite readily. Mm-hmm. Okay. What's next? So then we eventually, even no matter how much work you do, if you're with someone who has enough features of either of these diagnoses, but especially narcissism, you tend to get to this stage of intolerable distress where it's like, I don't even care whose fault it is, but this is intolerable, Mm -hmm. right? Like there's the fights are just so absolutely insane. I feel crazy. I feel very depressed and unhappy. We start to like have the seeds of recognition that this relationship, regardless of whose fault it is, is just toxic Mm -hmm. and I need to get out. And oftentimes this parallels just a a greater sense of self to this point of your buttons get pushed so much that you start to become desensitized. And so you're less reactive. And yet- when you become less reactive, if you're the problem, then things should get better. But Mm -hmm. instead things become worse. Um, With my less reactivity, my partner who needs me to react poorly in order to maintain their own sense of identity pushes harder, gets more aggressive, more Mm -hmm. destructive and more abusive. And And, and are the partners able to see this at that point? Can they identify like, oh, I'm getting less reactive and yet they're pushing even harder and more buttons or keep, repetitively pushing the button. Yeah. And so as we start to see and observe, like this doesn't add up yet again, I did all my own work. I did my stuff. I'm getting better and things are getting worse. 
there's at least a seed of recognition that I got to exit this relationship because okay. nothing's working. But there's also almost always this buildup of sense of self, this realization that I'm not the whole problem. Certainly it takes two to tango no matter what, but I recognize that my partner is the one that's pushing for a reaction for me. And so I can start to understand how crazy making this has been and stop living in shame and guilt about my reactions in the past. I start to reach out to healthier people because you have that ambivalence about the relationship now. So you start to look outside of yourself. Maybe you engage in individual therapy and a therapist helps to plant those seeds, or you reach out to former friends and family and you're more open with what's going on in your relationship. And they start to reinforce like, no, this isn't who you are. We've known you forever. This is, this is you in this relationship. So So that sounds like there would be some relief maybe, and maybe some validation. Yeah. And this like energy, there's this energy towards taking some action. And so, and that can feel really good. Cause again, it's hope. Like I'm ready to take this next step. I, I, there's generally no, not a huge period of ambivalence in these situations often, because if for someone who has full NPD, they escalate quite quickly when you stop reacting. And so it can become very emotionally abusive, very, it can become physically violent. Um, And so all of a sudden the evidence you needed to make the decision to leave is more apparent. And so there's a period of ambivalence, but I feel like for most of the clients I've worked with, it's, you know, six months to a year at most. um, Once you start to have those seeds planted, you're like, no, this is, this has gotten so much worse than I ever expected. And, And I really see now that this is a big part of my partner's problem. Um, It's probably not going to change and it's definitely intolerable. And And, and so while there may be some relief for the partner figuring all of this out, it's not like that everything's downhill from here on. Right. Uh, And this is also like the stage two of like the saddest part of this is that we get this hope. And I think our society does a poor job of preparing people for what divorce looks like, Mm. especially if you have children together, there's this felt this belief that once I separate, things will be better. But once you separate from someone with narcissism, you become their enemy instead of their ally, someone that they want to keep close. It becomes, there's a whole cycle of things that can happen, right? Of uh, I feel like it's almost like the grief cycles for the person with narcissism. You know, there's this reckoning and um, negotiation and uh, manipulation to try to get you back. And it can all seem very honeymoony for a minute. Like, oh, I'm going to, I met with a psychologist. I'm going to see a therapist. I've bought the book. I believe you. I definitely have these things going on. I agree that I've been abusive. They start to apologize for the first time ever. And so they, they start to try to instill hope and they, there can be a pretty messy period of pulling you back in multiple times, but it never lasts. That whiplash comes back very quickly. Once you're back in, it's really horrible on the kids in these cases during that messy period of back and forth. How did they, how would the narcissistic parent be interacting with the kids during this period? That's a good question. I don't focus on the kids in my practice, but just picking it up um, from what they share in sessions and in the support groups, it feels like the kids start off being, um, in some cases, mostly neutral ground because a lot of narcissists are fairly high functioning. And so they don't resort to using the kids as weapons until later. And it seems like they, there's this belief that they are a good parent, that they're going to continue to do these pieces. And a lot of them are decent parents until the children start to pull away. 
So mm -hmm. I feel like it's very age de developmental stage dependent. So the younger the child, uh, the more they're giving that unconditional love to the person that really, really needs it. And so they're allied and they give a lot of attention to the, the child in that stage yeah. in order to get that feeling of unconditional worth. Yeah. But then but once that child could make the parent feel good, right? That could be yeah. a source of like this child's making me look good. Definitely. So yeah. a lot of until the child starts to be their own person, I guess. Yeah. Agreed. So I think when the children are younger, there's a tendency to over identify with them to kind of create some enmeshment a little bit here and there um, to shower them with more attention than they did before the divorce mm -hmm. or separation, which can be confusing for the children as well, because they're filling a void as you mm -hmm. exit the relationship. And then spot on, once the child hits, you know, that preteen stage of individuation and starts to pull away, this again is a threat to the self-worth of someone with this disorder. And so they can be very controlling, which is the opposite of what you want to do with a child right. who's individuating, because then they rebel harder and it becomes <laughs> ugly and, and you have these ego injuries going on and someone with these features is very reactive to those ego injuries. Um, and so they kind of rule teenagers with an iron fist and it doesn't go very well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The kids, okay. yeah. The kids is a whole nother podcast, right? <laughs> right. Right. So I feel like the last stage is once, once you leave the relationship, there is this painful, but also relieving period of enlightenment. It's a combination of accepting that now that I've left the relationship, not as all going to be well. It's actually sometimes uglier than if I was still there. There's obviously pieces that are better, but there's also pieces that are much, much worse mm -hmm. um, as this person tries to maintain control over you or control over the family unit, even in the midst of separation. So it can be very high conflict for the rest of the kids period of being co-parented um, and even well beyond that. And then there's also this positive piece that we eventually get to of realizing like you're not alone that so many other people have been through this and that it, it is very similar in presentation. And so you can really relate once you start reading a book on this topic, that, you know, or connecting in a support group, there's this relief of, I'm not crazy. I can put that down. I don't have borderline personality disorder. I don't have any disorder except for like maybe some depression and anxiety from yeah. what I've been through, some PTSD me possibly and that I'm a good person and I get to go on and have my life and find a different partner if I so choose, knowing what the warning signs are and never ever, you know, putting up with gaslighting again. Because once you've been through it, you spot it pretty quick. Right, right. And so <clears throat> I've heard like from different people, like once they divorce the narcissist, maybe, and, that, and that's final, right? Once they get through all of that, because that can take some time too, is mm -hmm. my understanding, right? Just divorcing a narcissist is not your average divorce. For sure. I feel like the common th thread is they don't want the divorce. And so they will do anything to delay or to um, create complexity that um, causes delays or conflict. They want to win, especially if you have this blending of features and there's some antisocial features there that it's like winning at any cost. With both disorders, there's this ability to set aside morality it for just enough time to do whatever it takes to win mm -hmm. um, or to feel in control. And so they will go to great lengths to fight. And so even if your divorce moves quickly, um, then there's typically a legal battle that goes on and on and on after the divorce. Yeah. 
And that's an important when you say like they don't want the divorce, like you were saying, that's not about wanting you or wanting this family system. It's more about wanting to win or wanting control and power. Right. Because the narcissist, it's all about um, self uh, finding approval through others and how they look, their appearance, their status. And so they'll build up a very picture perfect uh, appearance from the outside and divorce is a failure, right? Right. And they don't want to face that, especially with family. There's a, a lot of difficulty with that person facing down their family. They'll often remarry very quickly in order to make it look like everything's fine and that they're the one that's in control. And it's, yeah, it's a messy piece that has nothing to do with you. <laughs> yeah. And so, okay, so once that divorce is finalized, I've heard people say that there's maybe some cycling, right? That there's still some discard that happens. Um, but then every once in a while, the narcissist comes back and tr- tries to engage, right? But maybe they move on and they have other sources that they can control or they get their fix, right? When your clients are to that point, what's your recommendation? I, I get that that's kind of case by case, but do you have some like overall, like this is my recommendation as to how to proceed because you do have kids with them and you're going to have to interact with them? Yeah. The place I start is really radical acceptance and it's the hardest piece to move through because it feels intolerable at that point at many points where it's just, whenever it gets really bad, it feels like I will never escape this. I am trapped until my kids are 18. They're never going to let me go. And like you pointed out, even if they move on and things go peaceful for a while, it's almost more like a psychological trauma because things will become peaceful and you'll move back into hope and you'll go back to your regular life and you'll kind of reestablish your connection with your own identity. And then they'll come back and torture you again and try to control you again because, you know, perhaps something's falling apart in their current relationship um, or they're experiencing some kind of stress or ego injury with the kids. And so they come back to that original narcissistic supply and try to poke at that again. And so it, there's this piece of just accepting that this is the reality Mm -hmm. and it's torture at first, but once you move through to that acceptance, you can kind of, you know, put down the detective pad, which comes out even more in divorce Mm -hmm. for different reasons, right? Because all of the abuse um, post-divorce is so insidious and um, shrouded in very clever tactics that make it look like you're the one that's causing difficulties, right? So the partner who's actually trying to do the best for the family unit looks like a whiny, a histrionic person, right? Because they're the one that are, they're making a lot of court filings. They are requesting mediation. They are documenting things. They're more reactive in emails because if you're like a rational, normal person going through this, you're, tendency is to be reactive and and you've been traumatized throughout the relationship. So they can still push those buttons through email or text or co-parenting drop-offs just with a few words. And so I think the first phase, that foundation is like accepting that you have got to still be the person that's doing work in order to be the stable parent and a stable individual in the midst of ongoing chaos. Okay. Um, And so from that acceptance, I think then the work is building yourself back up to the point where you can eventually have those buttons pushed without reacting. 
Mm. At, t- at least outwardly, right? You can have your own internal like turmoil over it, but you don't whip off the email that they're hoping for mm. where you're all angry and pissed and, and derogatory. So basically it's steps for that person to be able to emotionally disengage, right? I may yeah. be able to res- respond factually or to respond briefly, mm-hmm. but I have to keep the emotions out of that. Right. And I think the key tactic for that is mindfulness. I, this is why I got certified as a meditation teacher, because that just such a key piece to building resilience, to building that stress resilience is practicing meditation or some form of mindfulness because it creates that space between the triggering events and your response. Okay. And if you don't have that space, then the knee jerk reaction is always fear. Right. And, and fear is just, it's not our best self, right? No. It, it doesn't look really good. They will generally regret whatever they sent. Mm-hmm. So being able to have some of that space and it's not like, you know, I mean, sometimes it's an hour later I respond or a day later that they, they are responding, right? It may just be really what you're talking about. It's when all of a sudden you're like, Oh yep. wait, I got to take time. Right? I think I coach my clients. Like that first thing is just knowing that you need to take a few breaths. Like that's Mm -hmm. step one. And in order to be able to take those few breaths and to have that decision, that freedom to take those few breaths, you have to practice mindfulness Um, because they're just so darn good at pushing the buttons, especially the more you practice these skills and become good at disconnecting from the emotional reactivity, they will find other ways to push buttons that you would never dream they would. They will turn Mm -hmm. on the kids. They will manipulate the children. They will do whatever they can to get your attention because they desperately need you to react. Mm -hmm. And so it gets uglier before it gets better. Mm -hmm. And so it's this like ninja training of mindfulness so that I can take a few breaths. And then in those few breaths, I decide I need to sleep on this, right? Like I'm, I'm keyed up. I can notice my body's keyed up. My heart is racing. My fingertips are tingling. I am in a stress response. And so I'm going to, I'm going to go to yoga. I'm going to go on a run. I'm going to sleep on it. Like some decision to delay until we come back to baseline. And then maybe even deciding, especially early on that I'm going to have this friend that I trust or my therapist or coach, um, read through my emails when I'm most stressed about responding uh-huh. so that I have this additional filter that removes all of the emotional reactivity that actually gives all my power away. Right. So those steps, those recommendations really keep the empowerment with the person. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the more you do it, the more it reinforces itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because you don't regret it, right? Yeah. And you'll watch them spin out with distance because when you don't respond, it does get uglier, but eventually you start to see that button pushing behavior as separate from you instead of like intimate Uh and you can kind of just observe it. And notice with some empathy, even because that's our greatest strength as somebody who has been in that relationship, we can come back to it as a tool instead of a weapon against us to say that this person, I mean, narcissism is rooted in unconditional love at a very early stage in childhood where the primary caregiver did not give unconditional positive regard to the child and, and was not fully present emotionally. And so that's really sad. It's really, it's a miserable way to live, mm-hmm. to have these features, to have that deep sense of unworthiness that has right. to be constantly filled by other people. And so once you distance yourself from it more and more, 
you get to watch the spin out as this is not me. This Mm -hmm. has nothing to do with me. This has everything to do with their own emotional injuries as a child. And it's likely never to change. So I have realistic expectations that this is just what it is. And that all I have to do is just be the person that I choose to be. I have that freedom to choose to be that person. And if there's kids involved, I just get to be the unconditional parent that Mm -hmm. gives them that safe home base away from the storm. Yeah, which is so important. So a couple of questions um, maybe before we wrap up. And I'm wondering, let me state both of them and then we can talk about it. I'm wondering for women who divorce narcissists and go through their own healing from the narcissistic abuse, like what is that likely to look like when they remarry or get into relationships down the road? What is the relationship with the ex-narcissist look like? And then also I want to do, I do want to bring in the addiction piece and how the personality disorders are more likely to show up in addiction. So we're not just working on addiction, but we're also working on these personality disorders. Definitely. Uh, on future relationships, it's, I think it varies based on the partner's attachment style. And so in working with my clients, I often have them, there's this great book that's so perfect for any person. You don't have to have any educational backgrounds called Attached. Um, And it has a great little quiz in there to kind of figure out if you have an anxious attachment style, a secure attachment style, or an avoidance. Mm. And I would say like 80 to 90% of the women I work with who present for services um, in the process of divorcing or separating from a narcissist have an anxious attachment style. Okay. And so that foundation of understanding, I feel like is really key to not attract another uh, toxic relationship because as an anxious attachment, if that's me, I'm looking for that honeymoon excitement, that knight in shining armor again. And I'm very susceptible to being pulled into that, especially in the midst of trauma. And divorcing a narcissist and co-parenting with a narcissist is kind of just chronic traumatic stress. Yeah. So if you're not doing a lot of self-care, which I think part of the radical acceptance piece is like, I'm going to be in therapy (laughs) and in support groups through the whole period of my kids being co-parented because it's so crazy making and isolating and Mm -hmm. you, your closest friends and family members get pretty fatigued with hearing Mm -hmm. about the trauma and the difficulties and they can be very reactive themselves, which just feeds into your own reactivity. So I feel like therapy and support groups is really the way to go where people can help you just build up yourself rather than reacting to the stress um, and, and be able to heal even in the midst of that. But if you're not doing that work in particular and you have an anxious attachment style, then when somebody swoops in and is like, oh my God, I can't believe you have to deal with that. That man is just horrible. I would never let anyone hurt you that way. I'm going to protect you you feel very alone after leaving this person. And so that emptiness can be filled very quickly with someone who says all the right things again. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like there's this acceptance that there's going to be a period of healing that needs to happen before you go into any long-term committed relationship again. And that there's, and fortunately most of us, when we're doing our own work, we become pretty wary over time of the knight in shining armor. We have that awareness that oh, this, is, this feels good because I'm, I'm hurt right now, but I don't actually want somebody that just swoops in. And even if I really, really like this, I'm going to give it time. Mm. So I'm not going to jump into an engagement or a marriage. Um, I'm definitely not going to get pregnant right away. You know, like I want to give this the time to see what warning signs come up 
and after you've been through it, if you are doing the work and reading, like if, even if you just read a book on being with a narcissist, you'll start to see those warning signs crop up in your next relationship fairly early. Gaslighting becomes something that you're like, oh, I know what this is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did that. And now you're telling me I did it and you're leaving now. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and this right. is done. And so I think it's, it's educating yourself, taking ownership over the fact like nobody's going to save you from this. It's an unfortunate situation, but there's no justice. There's no winning over them. There is, you have to let go of the idea of winning entirely. Mm -hmm. uh, in court battles, it never, there's just, I've never seen any client come out with a, this incredible positive outcome that changes everything. The abuse continues no matter what, no matter what the courts say, even if they take away all parental rights, they, they're still this difficulty. And then you're dealing with the fallout with the children, um, no matter what. And yeah. so it's a, a messy piece of, of acceptance, lots of self-care and self-work, really focusing on the children as much as possible, because there's so much trauma for them in, in the process of the separation, even in of itself, but everything leading up to it and everything after. And, and then when you do start to date again, just having that awareness and support from outside reality checkers who believe in your worth as a person to, and trusting that, right? Yeah. Like this person in my life is my barometer and they're giving the thumbs down. So I'm walking away. So kind of a side note, I, my impression is, and you probably have more experience with this, so I want to check it out. But my impression is that the legal system, the court system really are, is not equipped to handle narcissists. Yeah, I would agree. Absolutely. Um, and if anyone wants to donate to charity after going through one of these things or have witnessed it with a friend or family member, there's a great um, nonprofit called One, One Mom's Battle. And okay. it came out of a book, which is a great book to start with if you feel like you're in a relationship with someone with narcissistic features. It's just this woman that put it out there. And the unfortunate piece is when you have children involved, it can be construed as alienation to express your story, mm -hmm. to share what has happened to you because the children could see that and feel distance from the other parent. And so there's very little out there from a parent's point of view, at least while the children are young. But Tina Swithin, who wrote the book, put it all out there and was dragged through absolute nightmare legal cases because of it. I'm not suggesting it, right. but it, luckily it is out there because she did that. And then she started a nonprofit to educate the legal system. And so they have, they put out information, they host events, they host trainings with judges and commissioners, um, attorneys. And different pieces. It is mind boggling to me, even to this day, how hard it is to find a good family law attorney who understands narcissism yeah. or antisocial personality disorder. Right. They can be just as naive as the partner who first entered the relationship. And they think, oh, we can just negotiate through this. I'll just reach out to his attorney or her attorney and we'll just figure it out. And meanwhile, the further along you get in your own court battles following the divorce, you have to educate them and be like, no, mm -hmm. this is like negotiating with a terrorist. They will right. absolutely delay, pretend, manipulate, mm -hmm. and do everything possible to avoid giving in because mm -hmm. it feels like losing. And oftentimes, even if there is like a court order or a temporary order, like the rules don't apply to them. Right. And there's, there's this sense, this naive sense that the 
the police and the legal system are always going to have your back. And one of the common stories, which is the worst um, in my experience with these women, and it's so common, is that they're the ones that get arrested when domestic mm -hmm. violence does occur because they're emotional and histrionic and naturally reactive to what's happened. And the other party is cool, calm, collected. They seem like the more reasonable person in the experience. And in Utah, we have this unfortunate law um, that I wish we would change that um, the police have to arrest somebody when there's a domestic violence call. And so it's so destructive. There's often children present and they have to watch one parent go away in handcuffs, which I feel like is destructive no matter what. Right. Yeah, um, that's a trauma thing. Yeah. And it almost never helps. Even if you arrest the right person, they are booked and released. They're right back at it. And then you think once they've been arrested or once they've been caught in court in a few lies that things will get better, but the legal system really, it's not set up to do any type of good behavior management from a therapy perspective, right? The commissioners and judges are very reticent to assign legal fees, for example. So if you're a single mom or a single dad bringing a suit, like enforcing your divorce decree or enforcing a protective order, it's costing you thousands of dollars or mm -hmm. like dozens of hours of your time um, and time off work to bring this. And then even if you're successful and the commissioner or the judge, you know, tells the other person that they've lost, they almost never give you legal fees to try to make you whole. And there is no making you whole, right? right? Like this would just help a little bit and they still won't do it. Yeah. And so it's, I, I think part of the acceptance process that I watch my clients go through over the years following the divorces that the legal remedies don't work. Um, most of the time, it's not to say you should, you should absolutely keep track of everything. Mm -hmm. You have to become, you have to accept that you're logging everything, create a logging system that works for you. A lot of my clients just maintain a Google calendar that's specific to their co-parenting relationship or specific to the divorce and just log. They'll just throw an entry in their smartphone of what happened that day real quick so that they can remember, they can look it up easily and have this, the dates and times and everything. But you have to, you have to log everything to prepare yourself against what they could file against you because they will often do mm -hmm. that and misconstrue the facts. And you will have to enforce certain pieces just to maintain the paper trail of what the reality is. But it's accepting that you're not going to walk out of that court hearing with a solution. Right. It's just almost never the case. You're still walking out with someone who is the parent of your children and has this disorder. Mm -hmm. Great. And those are good suggestions. Okay. So let's talk about how this fits in with addiction. Yeah. So in, in the research and in my own clinical observations as well, and I'm sure in yours, there is a, a high comorbidity rate between mm -hmm. um, NPD and uh, in particular, in my experience, um, antisocial personality disorder with treatment. And I think, again, my experiences skew me a bit. I spent five years at a nonprofit, large behavioral health center that catered more towards people who were legally mandated to treatment. Okay. And so I think we saw a much higher incidence of antisocial personality disorder in those cases because you, as an addict, get in trouble with the law a bit more <laughs> when you have those antisocial traits where you're willing to break the law repeatedly. And um, whereas uh, now I work for profit in addiction treatment, so I see, I haven't seen really very many antisocial features, but more of the narcissistic features. Mm -hmm. Um, showing up. And, you know, I'd say like the correlation 
I think a lot of times it's very intolerable to have this experience, this worldview of always being paranoid about other people's intentions, feeling very broken on the inside and, and distancing yourself from everybody in the process of trying to create intimacy and connection and a sense of worth. And so on the NPD side, they, I think there's also this grandiose sense that you can control your immune to what other people mm -hmm. experience. Mm -hmm. And so addiction isn't going to happen to you. You can dabble in all of these different pieces and self-medicate. And so, you know, cocaine and heroin, I, I think heroin in particular, escalating from pain pills is pretty common amongst that population. And then an interesting, I, I'm not sure what my opinion is on it yet, because I'm, I'm really pro-legalization of these substances that have proven in the research to be helpful if um, therapeutically and if used correctly, which we can't mm -hmm. when they're illegal. Right. But with marijuana, I've seen people with a narcissistic personality disorder actually let their guard down and mm -hmm. become vulnerable for a moment and be able to survive the sense of ego injury to admit Mm -hmm. what their actions have created in their lives, the outcomes, and be able to actually look at the enmeshed relationships from their past that had conditional love as a feature to be able to speak to that. Because a lot of times they put those people on a pedestal, even though those were the people that harmed them. Mm -hmm. So I've seen with, not so much with CBD, but with THC, the ability to just kind of allow the ego reactivity and defense system to dissolve temporarily in order to do some of that work. And given that we have no good research around treatment protocols for treating NPD, I think this is a huge opportunity to potentially have good outcomes by integrating some of those pharma pharmacological methods that allow the ego to step aside for a minute so that we can right. address the injury from childhood. Yeah. Interesting, interesting stuff. I think that in the addiction field, we'll have to see how some of these medications, and I mean, you've got several prominent people writing about various right now, illegal substances mm -hmm. that if they were legalized and we could dose it, right. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's appropriately um, given or administered that it actually has a better impact than the legalized prescribed ones now. Right. They're just the legal options for treating NPD just have proven to be very unsuccessful. Right. That ego has built, it's like an over-exercised muscle, I feel like, from childhood to the point where if you would allow the ego to step aside without that pharmacological support, it feels like death. Like I, mm -hmm. I literally cannot accept my flaws because I would I wouldn't survive it. Right. And because I'm so deeply hurt from childhood. And so there needs to be some intervention, you know, utilizing these like psilocybin or THC within a therapeutic set and setting to be able to heal that underlying wound. I'm, I'm kind of thinking that's the only way we'll ever have good outcomes with this disorder. Yeah. Well, Em, thanks so much. Anything you want to add before we wrap it up? Oh, just that if you feel like you're in a relationship with somebody with these features, if it's early in the relationship, get out <laughs> <laughs> because it's not your job to fix somebody. And we can't go into relationships hoping that somebody will change uh, in any case. But in particular, if it is escalating and you feel like you're crazy when you go through these arguments and you're being projected on like this, it is a long term um, 
And at this point, a low success rate of path for someone with these features to really do well in interpersonal relationships. I mean, with both of these disorders, they are marked by interpersonal ineffectiveness, mm -hmm. and manipulation and coercion and doing anything to meet their own needs. And it's just don't see that there's much success there until they've done that work. And hopefully we'll have better options in the future for better outcomes. And if you are in, if you're all in, if you're married or if you're co-parenting those pieces, definitely surround yourself with support, except that you will need that support. Like there's a budget line and all of my clients, like permanent budget line for therapy, because it's just not worth losing your sanity and falling into a deep, dark depression, um, going around with PTSD symptoms the rest of your life. It'll just undermine your future relationships and happiness. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. It was good to talk to you. You had some great things to say. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jackie. You're welcome. Thanks. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story till it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me remember I can't do it all. Help me to take things one step at a time. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen. Amen.